In the early church, there was a special greeting that Christians would use to find out who else was a believer. They would walk up to somebody, maybe they knew them, maybe they didn't, and they would simply say, he is risen. In response, the other people that were believers knew that they were to respond by saying, he is risen indeed. Let's try it together this morning. He is risen. risen That's the way it should sound. The early church was built on that principle. The church today is also built on that principle. When one believer sees another and they come together in fellowship and they're able to acknowledge our risen Savior, there is nothing better than that. Absolutely nothing better than that. Would you give God one more round of applause? There's a fairly popular motivational speaker today named Gary Gennard. I receive some of his updates, some of the blogs that he writes. I'll be honest with you, he kind of annoys me. I don't, I don't care much for him. He's a little bit arrogant at times, and the things that he puts out to try to motivate other people to be motivational speakers just rubs me the wrong way. But this past week, he wrote a blog. The title of that blog was this, Developing a Communication Bridge with Your Audience. That was the title. I thought, okay, I want to see what he has to say in there. The premise of that blog was this. Take a look at this. Audiences make decisions about your credibility, believability, and likability within the first 30 to 60 seconds of your presentation. Now, Gennard goes on to say this in this most recent article that he submitted, that those first 30 to 60 seconds are fertile pieces of real estate that need to be developed and not left to lie fallow. Now, that's not groundbreaking research or even groundbreaking revelation in the realm of public speaking. It really isn't. But Gennard would go on to say that when a person first steps up on the stage or first assumes the platform in front of whatever audience they're going to be speaking to, that they need to have developed, these are his words, a 30-second elevator speech that they have practiced over and over and over again and are so familiar with it that they will easily be able to introduce not only themselves but their subject matter to their listeners. Interesting premise. It really is. And there are a lot of people that are just starting to get into the realm of public speaking that could grab hold of some of those things and think to themselves, these are the rules that I must live by. If I'm going to be successful as a public speaker, I am going to have to do these exact things and live or die. That's exactly what they'll do. Now, you might think to yourself, why in the world is Phil giving us a lesson on public speaking on Easter Sunday? Doesn't make any sense at all. I'm glad you're wondering about that. There is actually a purpose. I was reading not only Gary Gennard's accounts this past week, but I was reading the Easter account, and I came to this conclusion, that the greatest communicator of love and forgiveness that has ever lived didn't follow any of Gary Gennard's rules. Not any of them. His name is Jesus Christ, and let me show you what I mean by that. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew, if you brought your Bibles with you. Chapter 28. There were several times throughout the Gospels when Jesus had the opportunity to present a sermon or some sort of a speech or a presentation. You can grab hold of any one of those words that you want and apply it to the different things that Jesus had to share with people. In some of those situations, very few of them actually, he would apply the principles that Gary Gennard and other people like him would talk about. Typically, he ignored every one of them, yet he was the greatest communicator that ever lived. One of the biggest platforms that Jesus ever had 
was post-Easter, after he came out of the grave. It would have been a public speaker, motivational speaker's dream, right up until Jesus stood out. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now that's a great setup. If you had to deliver a speech, that's the kind of setup you want. There's a bunch of energy already out in front of you. All you have to do is follow it with the message that you have. Jesus' table is set. This is good stuff. Now look at the introduction, verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. Now, that's the introduction of Jesus. He already has the setup, all the energy that he needs to deliver the message. This was the introduction, delivered by an angel. Could you imagine? If you were looking for energy, that would provide the energy that you needed. That's how Jesus, the great communicator, was just introduced. And it elicited a perfect response. Listen to this, verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now see, before Jesus has ever said a word, his audience is already so emotional that they are experiencing everything from fear to joy and every emotion in between. Have you ever looked forward to something so much that you are at the exact same time terrified and anticipating? That's exactly what they were experiencing. They were scared to the point of joy. Jesus has got it. I mean, it's just hanging there like a big softball. All he has to do is swing and hit it out of the park. According to Gary Gennard, if he had practiced his 30-second elevator speech, that introduction, he would have them. These people would do whatever he wanted. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus says. This is his speech. Pretty impressive, actually. Verse 9. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. That is the sum total extent of his speech. Isn't that great? Greetings. Now I want you to picture this the the way it actually played out. Jesus was not in the tomb. He wasn't standing around the tomb. The ladies had come to the tomb to find him. Now they were on their way back to find the disciples, just like the angels had said. So they're on their way back. Jesus, let's just imagine, is hidden behind a tree, and he steps out in front of them. Greetings. That's his speech. That's his platform. Greetings. Experts in the original languages would say that if they were translating that word in modern English in the year 2015, and they wanted to capture the essence of what Jesus said right there, this is what he said. He stepped out from around the tree and said, hey, just like that. Hey, what's happening? I mean, that's, that's it. Greetings. Now, you have to picture for yourself how he would have said that. A lot of times when we read the Easter account, we think everything was so somber, it was so serious, that Jesus would have stepped out from around the tree onto the road right in front of them and said, greetings. I don't believe that's the case at all. You see, they had no idea what to expect. They were going to the tomb to say goodbye. 
They weren't expecting a risen Christ. They weren't expecting Jesus to be in front of them. Even though he had told them over and over and over again that this is what was going to happen, they weren't expecting it. So when he stepped out around that tree, he knew exactly what was going on in their hearts, all of this emotion, fear, right up to anticipation. I can't picture it any other way than this. Big smile on his face as Jesus says to him, Hey, (laughs) weren't expecting to see me here, were you? (laughs) It's kind of a shock to you, isn't it? And that's all the speech that was necessary. The Bible says they fell at his feet and they worshiped him. He said, Now, you go find the disciples. You tell them I'm headed to Galilee and I want to meet them there. These ladies got up and did exactly what he said. From the realm of motivational speaking, from the realm of public speaking, it doesn't get any better than that. And nobody, nobody else could follow the principles that Jesus had. He is alone in every rule because he breaks every rule. Think about it. He broke the rule of death. And he breaks the rule of public motivational speaking. There is no one like him. Wouldn't you love it if he just stepped out in front of you and said, Hey, what's up? Let's talk. You see, from the very beginning, when Jesus came to this earth, he had one goal in mind, only one. That goal was sweet, connected fellowship with you and with me. That's all he ever wanted. He wanted there to be such a tight bond, such a tight connection between us and him that all it would take is one word to communicate. Jesus has always wanted that. It was so important to him that right before he went to the cross, he would pray about that very thing. This is in John chapter 17. If you still have your Bibles open, just turn over to that gospel. John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus' words. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That's exactly what he wanted. All he ever wanted, all Jesus ever wanted, was for a a relationship to be established between himself and all of his children, might even say his brothers and sisters. All he ever wanted was a relationship with you. And the best part of the story is this, He did everything that it takes to make that happen. He died, he was buried, and he came out of the grave. Jesus made it happen. There's an old preaching professor that has said for a number of years that there are two major revolutions that have happened in the history of mankind. And both of them involved the two exact same elements, a seed and home. Now, the way the professor would describe that is this. The first revolution came when mankind, when humanity discovered farming. Prior to that moment, and historians have tried to figure out exactly where it happened. They've tried to trace it back. All they can get is a general sense of when it happened. Nobody knows the exact time. But prior to that point, the only way that men and women survived was by hunting and gathering. That meant they could never have a home. They could never have a place to hang their hat. They could never have a place to put their feet up. That couldn't exist. But then one day, somebody dropped a seed and walked away from it. When they came back, they discovered that that seed could provide for them everything they needed. They looked at the fruit that had come out of the ground, whether that was on a tree or whether that was grain, doesn't matter. They had dropped the seed, left, and came back to find provision. 
when that happened, they could actually find a home. They didn't have to chase the herds around anymore. They didn't have to go far distances to gather everything that they needed to survive. A lot of their worries began to disappear because somebody dropped a seed. The seed was buried and it grew and it produced for them everything they needed. And they got a home because of it. The second great revolution involved the exact same things. Only this time, the seed was Jesus. He would actually use that type of an illustration to describe for all of his listeners what was about to happen on Easter. Listen to this, John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now those are Jesus' words, and he's using them to describe what's happening at Easter. He's the seed. He's going to be dropped. He's going to be killed. He will die, and he will be buried. But when he comes out of the ground, when he comes out of the grave, a whole new world will exist. People will find a home, a spiritual home, a place of belonging like they have never seen before, like they have never imagined Right up to this point in history, nobody from the religious realm could imagine a home where people could be connected to God on a personal level. Right up to this point in history, the Jews couldn't have fathomed it. All of the other false religions could never teach it. But now, all of a sudden, Jesus, because he was killed on the cross, buried in the grave, and has come out of the grave, has brought a new teaching, a revolutionary teaching to the entire world that still exists today. You can have a home in Christ. It's a home full of fellowship. It's a home of connection. It's a home where Jesus has done all of the work to make it happen. That's the good news of Easter. That's the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here today, because we all share the same home. Now, maybe you've never really stopped to think about what that home looks like. The Bible details it for us, lays everything out. Let me walk you through it real quick so you can see it. We'll start the book of Revelation. The first thing we have to know about this new home, this new place that we have, that it is built right next to a stream of the most pure, wonderful water you have ever tasted. Listen to Jesus' words. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. In the early days of exploration in our country, Water was one of the driving forces for every one of the pioneers and explorers, as it would be for us. When they were leaving the East Coast and making their way west to places like Montana, every one of those explorers had to think to themselves, where am I going to find my next source of clean drinking water? 
when they would find one of those spots, they would stay as long as they could, almost afraid to leave it, not knowing whether they were ever going to find another place where this most basic of needs could be met in their life. So they'd fill up every container they could, and then they would head on down the trail, hoping beyond all hope that they would find a spot where they could fill those containers again. Oftentimes it didn't work. Oftentimes they ran out of water. Things became very desperate. For some of them, that meant that they had to start drinking out of of puddles of water that you and I would look at and say, there's no chance in the world I'm going to swallow that stuff. Now, they had left some of those as well. Could you imagine what it was like making their way across the plains, not just following rivers, but making their way across the plains? They'd find these little ponds at different places full of muddy, dirty, nasty water. And then they found a place like Libby, Montana. Imagine if you were Lewis and Clark and, and you were struggling along from water source to water source and you'd just left one of those ponds and all of a sudden the Kootenai River was flowing in front of you. That's pure drinking water. You'd be thrilled to death. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is offering us in this new home. He's offering you a place where you can drink from the water of life all the time, every minute of every day, and it will satisfy your needs. Interestingly enough, there are a lot of people that make their way through life dehydrated by sin because that's what sin does. When we are involved in a a trap of sin and a cycle of sin, it's like drinking from one of those nasty old ponds just full of the scummy water day after day after day after day. It might even be better equated for us to say it's like drinking salt water. It dehydrates us. When people get dehydrated by sin, they start chasing all kinds of wrong places to satisfy that thirst, often in other pools of sin, and it just continues to dehydrate. So Jesus says, I'm going to offer you something different, something that will fill you up, something that will cleanse you, something that's pure and wonderful, something that will take all of that nastiness out of your life. I will give you a drink from the water of life. This was not an illustration. I was just taking a drink. I just, so I was bringing that up. I thought, wow, that's good timing. Phil. Huh. Jesus is offering us that drink of the water of life forever. Now, that's where the house is built. But you have to understand the house itself really to put all of this into perspective. This is the home that God wants you to have. When he builds it, he does it with what's been referred to as a design-build concept. He designs it. And he builds it from beginning to end. God is the author of this new home. Now, I'll show you why I believe that from the Bible. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, that's the design build idea of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He knew exactly what you needed, he knew exactly what I needed, and he built it. He designed it, and he built it. Now that's true in the physical sense as well as the spiritual. You see, Jesus Christ was never, ever plan B. He was the design from the beginning. And all of the Old Testament is the building of what happened at the end of Jesus' life. God had been building that house for a long time. It was complete when Jesus walked out of the grave. He does the same thing with you. He looks at what you need. He looks at what's missing in your life, and he builds the home accordingly. 
He designs it and he builds it. And the Bible says it begins with the foundation. A foundation built by God is a foundation that will never, ever crumble. It will never be moved. It will never be shaken. And the Bible shows us different places where that story is illustrated as well. This is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck, but that house could not be shaken because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, I completely understand this passage. I always have my entire life. So has my wife. We were born and raised in the state of Kansas, not just in the state of Kansas, but right in the center of the state of Kansas, which has been referred to for years and years and years as Tornado Alley. That's where we grew up. Jim Germany, I know, grew up in a place just like that. David Bulware grew up in a place just like that, right in the center of Tornado Alley. That's a tough place to be. I tell people all the time that I grew up in our basement because of tornado sirens, because there were tornadoes around us all the time from this time of year all the way through October. If you were born and raised in Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, you know what this is like. You spend a lot of time in the basement trying to avoid the storms. Sometimes you're successful, sometimes you're not. Now, Tina grew up in the same situation that I did, although we were about 120 miles apart. Today, she refuses, absolutely refuses to live in a house without a basement because of tornadoes. We live in Libby, Montana. Does anybody remember the last time there was a tornado in Libby, Montana? Doesn't matter to my wife. There will be a basement underneath us so that if that rogue tornado comes, she will have a place of safety. She understands the significance of foundation. And so should you. When God builds a house... He builds it on a solid foundation. Have you ever watched the news after some of the storms that have hit the Midwest and the South and home after home has been destroyed because they didn't have the right foundation? The thing that always gets me about that is when you see the same people year after year after year that have had their home destroyed and they continue to build it on the ground, they never put a foundation under it. When God designs a house, he designs it with a foundation that will last forever. And then he builds on it. And what he builds is spectacular. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 32. Isaiah writes this in verse 18. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. That's the house he builds. It's a place of undisturbed rest and unspeakable peace. You're safe there, physically, emotionally, financially, in every capacity, spiritually. You are safe there. That's the kind of house God builds. That's the kind of house he gives you. Listen to what we read in verse 19. Though hail flattens the forest and tornadoes rip the house off the foundation. I'm sorry, I added that. And the city is leveled completely. How blessed you will be when you live in the house of God. When you live in a house that the Lord has built. 
You see, from the water source all the way to the roof, God has designed this beautiful place where you can live and he can reside with you. And that has always been his goal. Easter made it possible. Easter brought that about. There is a word often attached to the idea of Easter and the teaching of Easter that the church overlooks way too often. That word is redemption. Biblically, that word carries great significance. Spiritually, it carries great meaning. It is, in essence, all of the material that is needed to build this house that God has promised you, this home where the two of you can be connected. Redemption makes that happen. And all that means is this. From the moment you were born, there has been a price that was hung on your heart. I had one as well. When you come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, he redeems you. He pays that price because you never could. That redemption comes on the scene. It comes into your life and it changes everything. The Lord buys you back. Now, you might wonder what the price is that was hung on your heart. You might look around and wonder about the price that was hung on the heart of everybody around you. Well, here's the deep secret of it. It's the exact same price. And Jesus paid it. Your life, my life, everyone in this room's life required that price. And Jesus paid it. Paid it, really, twice. First with his death, and then it was finished with his resurrection. When he came out of the grave, everything was done. You were redeemed. Yet many of us refuse to live that way. Many of us refuse to live like we have been purchased by the King of Kings. We stay stuck back where we were at. We let, allow other people to leave us where we were at rather than allowing us or allowing ourselves to move into the redeemed life. Yesterday morning, I was here early working on this message, just finishing it up, making some changes, and I received a text from a good friend of mine, simple little text, when he wrote it, I, I don't really know everything that was going on in his mind, but I know what it caused it in mine. His question was this in his text. Why one day in the grave, meaning Saturday? Why did Jesus only spend one day in the grave? I quickly responded with this. I said, because that's all that was needed. I wish I had thought about it a little bit more. Now, we had a little bit of an interchange, and I had put some more with that. But throughout the course of the day, I started to realize that there was more to it than just that simple answer because that's all that was needed. The Bible, if you worship at Libby Christian Church, will give, a, you know that I believe this, the Bible will give us answers for every question we ever have, and this is a perfect illustration of it. When Jesus was in the grave on Saturday, he was there as long as he needed to be, but he was awfully busy. Do you know what he was doing? He was changing clothes. That's what Jesus was doing. Now, there's been all kinds of different theological explanations from people's imagination and from some well-studied minds that have come up with other answers. But the Bible tells us exactly what was going on. He was changing clothes. And we have to see that if we're really going to understand what we're supposed to do with the Saturday of the resurrection story. So go with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 1. I turned to this passage after my mind getting caught up in his text. I had chased all kinds of different rabbits. Then I ended up here. John chapter 20, verse 1. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now listen to this. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That's a great story. It gives great understanding to what was going on on Saturday. Jesus was changing clothes, and that's all the time it took. He spent one day on the cross, that was Friday. It took one day for him to come out of the tomb, that was Sunday. But on Saturday, he was changing clothes. It was when these two disciples saw those clothes lying on the ground that they believed. Now, I want to speculate for just a minute. This is out of my mind, that's it. It doesn't come from the Bible, so travel with me if you want to, you don't have to. I can't help but wonder, when they looked at Jesus' strips of linen... And that head cloth, neatly folded there, which, by the way, my wife would tell you, when I'm changing clothes, there's no neatly folded on the backside of it. There's just a big old heap of clothes somewhere in the general vicinity of the clothes hamper. She's been working for 25 years to get me to get it in the basket. Today, she has surrendered and said, get it close to the basket. If it's close to the basket, I'm happy. That's exactly what it would have looked like for me. But if they were looking really close, maybe, just maybe, they saw their clothes as well. Not just Jesus's, but theirs. Grave clothes. Clothes that that they had been buried in for a long time, laying right there next to his. Because the Bible says they saw and they believed, though they still didn't know about the resurrection. They had to have believed from something. Well, all of that caused me to remember a story that I'd read a number of years ago. I couldn't remember all the details of it, so I went digging around in my library. I'm just throwing books over my shoulder, looking and scanning. I knew what it looked like on the page. I had to find it. So I found it in this book, and it it was everything that I had remembered it to be. In the year 2010, a judge in the state of Tennessee decided that he was going to try to do something to curb drunk driving in his community. A law was not passed in the state. It was just a decision that he made for his district. He decided that every person that was caught and convicted for drunk driving would have to pay a special penalty when they stood in front of him. For three days, eight-hour days, all day long, they would be picking up trash on the side of the road. Now, that's not unusual, and that's not unheard of. But he decided he'd take it a step further, and he would make them wear a blaze orange vest. Also, not unusual and not unheard of number of people that are out picking up trash on the side of the road are wearing blaze orange vest or green vest, any number of ones that keep them from getting hit by drivers that are headed down the side of the road. This judge said, though, that he was going to put something on the back of every one of those orange vests. This is it. I am a drunk driver. Every one of them on the side of the road for eight hours a day for three days, that was their sentence would have to wear that vest. You realize how many people wear vests like that? They say, I'm a drunk driver, or they say all kinds of other things. Only we don't get the privilege of taking them off after three days. 
we don't get to leave them behind after we've spent 24 hours in them. We wear them all the time for years and years and years. They might look like this. I am a constant disappointment to my parents. I have wasted my life. I work too much. I drink too much. I have an eating disorder. Or this one. I have secret sins that haunt me every day. If we were to walk into the grave of Jesus and we were to see his grave clothes lying there, it would make sense that ours were to join him. That we could leave those vests behind. All the things that have defined us to the point of death, spiritual death, can be buried right there. And we can walk out in a new life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Well, if you've been crucified with Christ, that means that you've been buried with Christ. And if you believe in Jesus, that means that you have come out of the tomb with Christ. You ought to look like it. The grave clothes need to remain. You need to come out in this new life because Paul promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that when we come to Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. The new has come. We've been redeemed. All of those old things have been paid for. We crucified him with Jesus and we left him in the tomb. We walked away from him. That's the way it's supposed to be. The message of Easter is such that we can understand not just Jesus coming out of the grave, but us coming out of the grave into a new life with him. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A new life with him. No longer having to wear the orange vest. No longer letting other people force us into that vest. No longer being held down by it, but living a new life. Let me close with one other passage of scripture that illustrates what Jesus has done through this revolution that he's brought into our world. It's found in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. My friends, that is redemption. Jesus Christ is making all things new, and it starts with your life. It starts in your heart. He's redeeming it. He is changing it. He is restoring it. He is giving you new life. Live like it. That's all it takes. Just live like it. 
Accept the gift that he has given you in eternal life. Accept the gift that he wants to give you so dramatically, which is a connected, sweet relationship with him where you hear his words and you do what it says. Live that way and see what God does. Maybe that needs to begin today. Maybe it started for you a long time ago. Maybe you have known God for years and years and years and years, but it seems like you've kind of gotten lost. Well, I want you to know this. If you are spiritually lost, it's not because God moved. It's because you have. You just have to come back to him. You get yourself back and live in redemption because you see the Lord's waiting and he's accepting and he's ready to meet you. So live the redeemed life. The old is gone. The new has come. And that's the message of Easter. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, it is so hard for many people to let the old go. We hold on to it with all we have. Every ounce of strength, physically and spiritually, we use it to grab hold of that old life. I don't know why. For many, it's an ugly way to live. And you offer us this beautiful new home, custom built for us. So, Father, what I'm asking today is that you'll help us move into that. You'll help us to see it, to realize it, and to move into it, to live there with you in this place of unending, unequaled peace. Lord, help us do that. Thank you for making it possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for that being the message of Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.